Hello and welcome to the Swift Coders Podcast, where each week we interview an amazing Swift developer about their experience with Apple's new open source programming language. We hear their stories, learn their tips and tricks, and try to leave you feeling inspired and empowered on your Swift Coder journey. I'm your host, Garrick, and today's guest is Erica Sadoon. Erica is a writer, developer, and mom, as well as the author of many Swift and iOS development books, including Swift from 2 to 3, A Quick Migration Guide. Welcome to the show, Erica. Hey, Garrick. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Thank you so much for being here today. Uh, It's the earliest I think I've ever recorded this podcast. And, uh, you know, I just had to do it. I had to do it because you're on mountain time. So you're an hour ahead of me and you you enjoy mornings. And uh, so here I am. Um, I'm, I'm up out of bed. Not quite dressed, but uh, I'm up and out of bed. What more do you want from me? I am impressed. That is a really major step forward in the programming day. <laughs> so what are you up to right now? Where are you and what are you up to? Well, I live in Denver. Cool. And right now... I'm finishing off a major project called Swift Style, Oh. and it is a Swift Style Guide. It's not so much an absolute style guide, so much as an exploration of what Swift Style is and how people can use style choices in their code to make their code safer and more readable. Great. And then that would be like for your personal projects or your work projects, but also for like APIs, like um, open source libraries, anything. Mm-hmm. I've interviewed many developers for this. I've gone out and tried to research existing style guides. I've also gone into the Swift libraries where Swift itself is being developed to try to talk to and interact with the code for both the Swift standard library as well as their documentation folk. And the idea is that rather than say there is one exact way to do things, I have tried to say, well, there are certain groups and certain people who do it this way and certain people who do it that way. And here are, you know, the different ways you can make choices about your code and do intentional coding that creates a very strong message of structure. Because when you do that, you get to move away from the bracing and spacing, as I call it and focus on what is the code trying to communicate? What is the code trying to create? And how do you read this code without the code getting in the way of you understanding it? Yeah, I mean, I love all that. Um, I've been dealing with some legacy code at work and it's really a shame. It's it's like, it just makes Swift look so terrible. (laughs) It's so sad because Swift can look so beautiful. Um, And like, that's how I look at um, like sort of style and, and even like, you know, API design um, is like, is it readable and like, is it nice to use? But it sounds like you're also saying it can make it um, safer, like either with your style of, of, of writing, like the style in the, 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 what do we call it? The style of syntax? The, well, there is style, there is syntax. And Swift from the very beginning has focused on safety. It was one of the primary concerns of the development of the language. So it is a type safe language. It's a language that mandates bracing, for example, if clauses. So things that you could do that were potentially damaging or unsafe in C or Objective-C, they're excluded from the language naturally. 
But on top of that, there are best practices that you can do to make sure that your code becomes safer when you write it, that in fact the intent is clear, and that you don't get so clever that you introduce errors unintentionally. So what, uh, where can, I mean, because it's, it's, I always felt like what the work that you're doing, like the writing that you're doing, it's almost like you're collecting information from all these different sources. Like, where can we get this if we're not getting it from your book? Like, is this just not, like, I feel like the only other place is just like swift.org. There's like this API guideline, but is there really no other place to just read on Apple's website that says like, hey, this is the way you should code? It's so weird. Well, I started off making notes for myself long before Apple open sourced. Okay. And then when they did open source, I did help out with the API guidelines. So some of the phrasing in the guidelines are me. Oh, wow. But it's such a short document. Right. They really tried to keep it very succinct. And there was so much more to say and explore. So... I just kept having piles and piles and piles of these notes. And finally, I got to the point where I said, I really need to turn this into a pamphlet. And then the pamphlet turned into a short book. And then the short book turned into a slightly longer book. Because there really is a lot to say about the specifics of what makes good Swift. So just to be clear, we're talking about like the way that we write. Swift. It's almost like the way that you apply paint, like on a canvas or something, mm-hmm. right? It's like the way that we write it. Um, and it sounds like there's all multiple benefits, right? It's more clear, more understandable, more mm-hmm. readable, more beautiful, but also more safe, yeah. um, which, which, which I love that. And, Let and me give you an example of what I mean by safety. And that's um, access control. Okay. Do you know what access control is? It's the way you declare the visibility of your APIs. Right. So just for those that might not know, you know, you have like public, you have private, maybe file private, you have internal, things are internal by default. So like if you're writing a, I don't know, everyone's probably heard of like Swifty JSON. Everyone talks about Swifty JSON, <laughs> right? So like whoever wrote that said some things are private, nobody sees, and some things are public. Everybody can see these things. Okay. So how does this relate to your, um, your book? Well, for one thing, you should always put the access modifier first. Okay. Swift Can you will do compile it? Really? if it's in other places. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> but you should always put it first. You should be able just to visually scan the left side of an API and see, is this public or not? Right. Is this open? Is it internal? By placing it, making a deliberate choice to place it on the left, first of all, you know that you have audited everything. It's a confirmation that each thing is an intentional choice. So if you belong to an organization, and it's really critical what is exposed and what isn't, if you use the internal keyword rather than just going with the default, when somebody comes to read your code, Mm. they see the keyword there. They say to themselves, ah, intentional choice was made here. This is not just going with the default where I don't know if the person chose it or if they forgot it. That's great because I was actually going to ask you, like, since internal by default, like, should we say internal? That's such a great point because, yeah, now you know the intention is clear. But it really does vary. 
I'm not saying this is an absolute for every coder in every circumstance. If you're writing in a playground and nobody else is going to ever see your code, it doesn't matter. Right. So a large part of style is knowing your audience, knowing the circumstances in which that code will be read and accessed. And even if the audience is you yourself sometime in the future, there's are many ways that you can make sure that your code is going to communicate the things that you know now that you don't necessarily know when you go back and read it because time, memory, all these things affect you as a coder. And there's this little thing I'd like to say about myself, <laughs> which is past me is a total jerk and future me is a total idiot. Interesting. And what I mean by that is that I always wish that past me had done a better job of explaining why I made certain coding choices, <laughs> had explained my algorithms, had just done a few minutes extra work of making it clear of how this code evolved. Because I know from future me point of view that it's really hard to get back into your, your head. Right, right, right. And if you're working with a group, if you're collaborating, if you're on an open source repo and so forth, the costs of not creating readable code and not creating properly commented code just grow up and up and up as you invest more in larger group work, in APIs that will be consumed outside of yourself or outside of your house. You need to have standards which make sure that your code is the most documented, most reliable, best tested. Oh, my gosh, I could go on forever about testable <laughs> and basically safest material to work with. So this is the book that you're working on right now, right? What's mm -hmm. it called? It's called Swift Style. Um, Pragmatic has just bought it. So Congratulations. I'm not self-publishing this particular one, even though I had intended to originally. And I call it a fussy meditation on propriety. I love it. I love it. <laughs> and by propriety, you mean like um, the proper way to behave in public kind of a thing? <laughs> exactly. And I, I picked out a turtle from my cover who is a very fussy turtle with a top hat yeah. and looking very snooty yeah. because there is a value to propriety in coding. And it's not just a value in terms of feeling good about your code. There is a cost benefit that you can calculate that safer code in terms of maintenance costs, in terms of update costs, in terms of all the ways that you interact with your code, that you will find a financial reward, a monetary reward, a, a time reward, plus, you know, the smugness of just having done a job well. Yeah, so many different thoughts are coming into my mind. You know, you, we have this gentleman turtle or this lady turtle with this top hat, and, you know, talking about propriety and like good manners. Um, and then I'm like, I'm thinking about this tweet about like, I always, I always think about when I'm like, either writing good code or seeing bad code. I'm like thinking to those who are about to write clean code, I salute you. And I'm thinking about like your book is almost like um, 
like Emily Post, um, um, what's it called? Um, manners and behavior or something like of your day. So like back in the day, I think her name was Emily Post. She wrote a book about like how to behave in public or something like that. Mm -hmm. But like your book is like kind of the modern day version of that because like, you know, uh, only more and more people are going to be programming. And so all of a sudden it's going to be like someone's walking down the street being like, yeah, they have bad coding uh, uh, behavior or coding (laughs) manners or something, you know. Oh, it's so funny. Okay, so... So when is uh, this book coming out? When um, when can we expect it? Well, right now it's an editorial review and technical review. So I'm going to guess that the ebook version, because Pragmatic has this wonderful program, which they call the beta book program. Okay. Which allows the book to go into an ebook printing before it hits paper. Okay. The paper version of the book should be out January. But they do sell early access to the beta book, and that hopefully will be somewhere towards the end of November because we're getting very close to the end of the project. Okay, so just in time for sort of Christmas. That's perfect. Okay, so for those that might not know, if you know, if you kind of are sort of just new to the Swift world, then you might not have heard of Erica. But if you, you know, if you have some knowledge of the Swift world, you probably heard of Erica. But just to be clear, Um, Erica is the author of many um, popular Swift books. She also has the honor of being like the the person with the most um, submitted and or accepted proposals on Swift Evolution. Maybe you can clarify Mm -hmm. that one for me. Um, Um, Both, I would imagine. Okay. Yeah. So Erica's pretty, um, she's a pretty big deal in the Swift community. Um, (laughs) uh, So, okay. I want to talk about all this amazing stuff that you do, but I really do want to learn about you. So if we can just spend a little bit of time learning about who you are and like, you know, how you got to where you are. And then because there's so much to talk about, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of go through that and then we'll try to, you know, get to the, to the other, the, the meat and all that. So you're, you're living in Denver now. You're working mm-hmm. on this um, Swift style book. Um, what, what are you up to right now um, besides that? Is there anything else um, like work-wise or iOS Swift-wise, or are you mostly just focused on that book right now? Well, I'm wrapping that book up. I just put out a book on migrating Swift code from two to three, wow. which is, I think, a very timely and useful book for anybody who has a code base that's been in, two, been in 2.3 who's saying, okay, it's time now to, to push on to Swift 3 because Swift 3 is such a major language rewrite. It is a very challenging, breaking change to the language. And in that book, I try to help you move forward from what is essentially one language into almost a completely different language. Yeah, I had a lot of people on my uh, Slack team who are part of like my meetup uh, talking about migrating to Swift. And I actually tried to do it with um, a couple of my projects and like just kind of just stopped. And I don't work with Swift 3 on the on the daily, you know, the most of programming I do is at work and we're still on Swift 2.2. So mm-hmm. um, but I, I think it's a big issue. And I think especially for for, you know, beginners who are wanting to take advantage of uh, Swift 3 who are doing projects in Swift 2 they might have been dealing with that. And um, so hopefully that book um, is able to help some people out there. I'm hoping that too. And also after a certain point, people in, who are doing projects in Swift 2 
will be making the transition. It's going to happen sometime. And I'm glad that I've been able to put a book out there that will help look at things from a fairly high level as well as a low level of how that migration is going to happen. Yeah, I'm going to have to put it, uh, put that book on our order list for work because we're going to have to migrate someday. And uh, that's going to be, that's going to be crazy because the existing code base is, you know, it's big. Um, actually, mm-hmm. so before we jumped in, jump into your story, I wanted to ask one question actually um, about the Swift style book, which is uh, when do you think it's a good time to, to start thinking about those type of concepts and, and read your book? Um, like what, what type of, like at what level, like is it even when you're just a beginner, maybe it's a good time or if you're more advanced, like when do you think it's a good time to start thinking about that stuff? Even if you don't know Swift, but you do know programming, it's a good book for you. If you are a professional Swift coder, this is a good book for you. Beginners aren't necessarily going to have a lot of opinions about style right? because mastering the language and expressing the language are really two different areas. Okay. So master the language, you know, first or at least get more comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. And then, um, cause my feeling is like, if you get bad habits early, it might be hard to break them. And so like maybe somewhat early on, like start thinking about. Oh, style. certainly. I think any programming language, you should be thinking about style fairly early. Yeah. And there is a certain degree of overlap in my content with good style for any programming language. Okay, so um, wrapped up Swift style or you're wrapping up Swift style, wrapped up the migration book. Um, Okay, so it sounds like you're working on these books. Okay, so because I like to just get an idea of like what our guest is up to right now. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is where this is where you are right now. But I want to know, how did you get here? So when did you start programming? Have you been doing this your whole life? or I've really been programming my whole life. Wow. Okay. What was your first, uh, like, what was your first interaction with a computer or programming? Do you remember? I do. And this is going to date me so much, but it was basic. <laughs> cool. Okay. Awesome. And what, like, why? How did you have access to basic? Simply because the library system had... At your school? No, it was the library system for the city okay. had access to um, deck computers, deck eights. Okay. With, you know, the teletypes and so forth. Okay. And at the same time, my mother was going through a master's program in education. Oh, wow. And so part of the idea was that you could teach kids to program. I was there. So I was sort of the guinea pig. Oh, okay. All right. So your mom was an educated person. So you were sort of around that. You were at this, this library, they had this program and you were a guinea pig. Okay, well, good for you. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, some people, you know, they, they, I don't remember being like into any of that at the time, you know, like programming or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So, wow. Basic. And so how old were you? Like 10? I don't know. Well, I mean, you uh, know, were you like five? Wow. Okay. So you literally have been programming. It was literally like, your kindergarten. Okay. Wow. Okay. So did you immediately fall in love with it or, or oh, did you not really understand? It, it was or? magic. Really? What was the feeling? The feeling when you, it was better than Legos. 
Why? Because Legos don't write back to you. Uh-huh. Legos don't tell you what's going on. And you could build games and stuff with programming that you couldn't with Legos. Legos just sort of sit there. Okay, so and I don't mean to diss Legos because I love my Legos. Yeah, no, but there's yeah, there's a little bit more maybe power or something in it. Mm-hmm. But then Legos have like the tangible aspect, the physical kind of tangible aspect to it. Okay, mm-hmm. so you are learning basic. Do you just continue and, and and go to high school and you're just computer programming the whole time, or how did that work? Yeah, pretty much. Um, you know, and along the way, they had Fortran classes because that was the thing you would study if you were trying to do computer programming, you know, and they offered that in high school. Okay. So you, you didn't find it difficult to find like resources for learning and anything like that? No, I think that, you know, it was readily available. Yeah. It was lots of fun. Yes. I know Fortran fun, but it was. (laughs) Um, Okay. So then in high school, did you study a lot too or? Well, in high school was really the Fortran years. Okay, cool. And then did you go to college and get a computer science degree? I went to college, but they didn't have computer science degrees yet. Wow, interesting. Did they yeah, have computer I know, science I'm classes? I'm such a geezer. <laughs> did they have computer science classes? They did, but you either had to choose between applied math okay. or EE. What's that? Electrical engineering. Oh, okay. And I went with applied math because I've always loved applied math a lot more. Wow. Okay. So what did you do when you graduated or, you know, when you got out of college? Um, when I got out of college, I then went to more college. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I had this tendency. I really kind of went in and out of doing professional programming and going back to school and doing both at the same time. Okay, so you were doing professional programming. What was like your first professional programming job? Or okay, um, I was doing friend foe identification in Lisp on a Lisp machine. Oh wow! Um, my coworker Nathan, he loves Lisp. He's like, I think he's learning it right now. Lisp is awesome. What's a friend foe uh, recognizer? You said friend foe identification. Ide- what's that? If you're in an airplane. Okay. And there's another airplane coming at you. You probably don't want to hit the shoot button if that guy is on your team. Oh, like a like a jet, a fighter airplane. Yeah, fighter airplanes. Oh, okay. So you created like some type of vision or radar or something. I was of... doing early computer vision work. Wow. In Lisp. In Lisp. So I hear these days Python is used a lot for computer vision. Uh, there are so many I wonder languages could... that you can now do it in. Yeah. Can we do it in Swift? What's up with that? <laughs> you can do it in Swift. Just use the Accelerate language. Uh, not the Accelerate framework. language. The Accelerate framework. Yeah. Have you worked um, with that? For, for vision process. Oh, I love it. And oh. Swift, especially Swift 3, is so great for working with C APIs. Everybody, you know, you have to sort of cross this barrier but once you get it and once you're working with, you know, the binding of the memory and the unsafe pointers and the passing retained and unretained, once you can get past that, it is just the bomb. Oh, I like that. Okay, so because there's like all this talk about like, 
you know, computer vision and machine learning and AI and neural networks and deep learning and like yeah. autonomous cars. And, and then I'm like, okay, but I like Swift. What do I do? <laughs> but my, my academic background really, it did pass through um, computer vision and machine learning. Wow. And then it awesome. ended up in user interfaces. Okay, so, but really quickly, like, we, we can do it. Do you think it'll be bigger, like, uh, Swift and, like, in computer vision and all that? Do you think it'll start to become bigger, like, more something Swift that Swift developers can do? has really, from the start, been intended to be a language that is very general purpose. Right. That it's safe, it's controlled, and it's for systems. Right, okay, cool. Cool, so... Wow, Lisp in computer vision, you're making like this. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's awesome. And then, of course, right after that, guess what came next? Um, I don't know. Objective C and Smalltalk, because that was the time that Next came out. Oh, okay. So I was using Next machines and Smalltalk machines. Why though? Why did you go from Lisp to Smalltalk? How did that? Because Lisp, I was being paid, and Smalltalk and Next were at the when I went to grad school. Oh. Okay, wait, so you went to grad school and that was the computer that was at your grad school? Um, Steve Jobs was really doing a lot of educational outreach, right? as was um, Palo Alto Xerox. So the machines ended up at the computer labs. Oh, and they were just there and you took advantage of it. Mm-hmm. How do you go about learning like, uh, you know, small talk? Because that was like the first sort of like real big object oriented Stuff at least it was like getting popular. I think right at the time, like that's why, you know, it Apple really ended up was. buying. I mean, so how do you go about like learning that? Like, is it, did they have a book or something? Or well, I took courses. Oh, okay, so they had teachers. Like Apple would send like or Next would like send people to go teach it or something. Well, no, they wouldn't. I did manage to attend a Objective C class at Next, wow. which was being taught by a flying Karamazza brother, Randy Nelson. Okay, but for the most part, um, Brad Cox's uh, language design principles, you know, the Objective-C stuff, what was modular programming, um, you know, encapsulation and all that, it was being developed and all that. And it was very much part of the academic curriculum. It sounds like it must have been pretty exciting. Um, There's this one Steve Jobs interview where he's talking about object-oriented design. And how it's going to be the future. And like, I was just in the process of learning um, Swift and iOS development, and I get really excited about reusable code and object-oriented design. And so, like, I just felt like kind of goosebumps. So, like, um, you know, when I heard that, so I can only imagine at that time how exciting that must have been. Mm-hmm. It really was. And at the same time, there was research going on in the department about a lot of the things that we're now seeing in programming languages. In Swift, you have the enumeration type, which basically is a union type, but can be expressed using different memory layouts. Interesting. And they were doing that kind of research back then, and it's now you can use it. I mean, it's a nothing. Everybody has it now. Well, so you know, like really, like low level, like computer programming stuff, right? See, I don't really know. I just assumed, yeah, it's enumeration. Of course, it's like that's what it is. <laughs> You know, I didn't know, like, memory layout. Like, I don't know what that is, you know? Like, memory. What's memory in Swift, right? (laughs) We actually, um, you know, there was a certain period of time when you got a CS education where you started with chips. 
Right. Right. And you programmed, you know, from assembly all the way up. I, I'm saying up to C, although saying up when you're talking about assembly in C is not necessarily, you know, it may be sideways to C. But from there and then bringing in the, the notions of algorithms and more interesting approaches for languages. And it was about the birth time of C++ and so forth. And there was this really huge movement towards object-oriented languages. But if you look at Swift, we're now moving on to new paradigms. Like protocol. Like protocol-oriented programming, yeah. Yeah, I've been having a lot of fun with that. Mm -hmm. Have you written much at all about that, or do you have anything planned for something like that, a protocol-oriented programming book? You know, I wrote a book called uh, The Swift Developer's Cookbook. Oh, right, yeah. Which does have a major chapter on doing protocols and... Cool. Awesome. Yeah, I've been enjoying You know, generics. That. I love them. Yeah. Okay, so you're um, learning small talk. You're doing, it sounds like you're doing a graduate program or something like that, and you're learning yeah, small talk, and you're I learning Objective-C. Mm-hmm. So what comes next? How does that ha- take us to today? How, did, how does that, like, lead to today? What are you up to at, during that time? You know, it's really funny because while I was at in graduate school, I met my husband. Oh. And... So we would sit down and we would talk about how are we going to stay married? Okay. We felt that was a big part of getting married was trying to figure out how to stay married. Okay. And we looked around at all our friends and everybody who was doing a double PhD dual career path was divorced. Oh, wow. Okay. The divorce rate was just ridiculously horrible. And... So we needed something I could do to Uh stay active in technology, but allow me to be a bit more mobile Mm. because he had tenure and it's really hard to try to get that second tenure position. Mm. And so... I sort of naturally fell into doing part-time consulting and writing. Wow. So the second tenure, you meant like you you being tenure? Yeah. Oh, and like at the same school or something? Well, it, I wouldn't have been at his school because he was at a small liberal arts college. Oh, okay. And I tend to kind of hang in more the geek engineering crowds, and they did not really have a strong engineering program. Okay. So you're thinking about how do we make this work and you just took, you know, your whatever you had, which was like in your sort of your quiver and your tool belt. And you're like, well, I'm really good at consulting and writing. And so this is what I'm going to do. What was the first book you wrote? Uh, It was something about HTML. (laughs) Cool. Awesome. Which was pretty new at the time. Was it hard to write that first book? The first book was ridiculous ridiculously hard because now it seems like you just like write books in your sleep or something (laughs) it's a skill it's a learned skill yeah it's a really good mental exercise not just how to have information how to have knowledge but how to express it in a way where it tells a story to someone else and they can learn from it because your success as a writer is not, oh, I got it out of my head onto a page. 
your success as a writer is it goes from the page to exciting someone, inspiring someone, and giving that person skills. Yeah, and that's what I'm trying to do with the podcast. You hear that, folks? If you're thinking about maybe writing, you know, writing a book or, you know, and I have actually some members who are trying to make a name for themselves in the community. They're writing blog posts and things like that. So, yeah, it's about, like, not just getting your ideas out there, but trying to, like, communicate those ideas to the reader, the listener, to inspire them, to excite them. That's really great. Okay, sorry, Empathy is such a big part of it. Yeah, 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 because, I mean, and and that's, that's again, like, why the, the podcast exists, because, like, I felt, you know, kind of alone and, like, wasn't sure if I was doing the right thing and, like, but then I created the the meetup and it's like, wow, other people are like me. Create the podcast. Wow, other people are like me. So you're right. Like empathy is is really important. Okay, so how does that lead to iOS development? You're doing consulting and writing. Mm-hmm. Um, HTML was the first book. How does that lead to, to iOS? Well, by the time 2007 rolled around, I was doing um, major blogging. Um, I had been at um, O'Reilly. Oh, yeah. And Lifehacker. And I had moved to Tuaw, which is the unofficial Apple weblog. And that was part, it was kind of like the kid's sister of Engadget, but it was devoted only to Apple topics. I actually don't, what, what's the, what's the Tuaw, but what does it stand for? The unofficial Apple weblog. I actually don't read that. I need to take a look at that. Well, you can't because they closed it down about it year or two ago and so all the old posts are available at Engadget okay so you can find my writing there and it's part of the Engadget archive but it's now just totally subsumed into Engadget oh okay okay so you were writing a lot for you're you're blogging a lot Mm -hmm. and then 2007 rolls around and Steve Jobs says an iPhone I thought that was really cool so I bought one me too and then over that summer, because it came out what around June, July. Uh, it came, I think, after yeah, in the summer. It came out in, during the summer. But I remember early August, somebody said somebody has put together a tool chain for it. Oh. And a tool chain is you know a compiling suite where you start with code and then you end up with something executable that can then be run on a platform. Okay. So. I went ahead and I built the tool chain and it was just so much fun. <laughs> Wait, so this was like the first programming you could ever do on an iPhone? Because, you know, at first you couldn't do, you couldn't write apps for it. There wasn't an SDK, etc. Right. So was this like jailbreaking kind of a thing or something? Oh, it was totally jailbreaking. You sound <laughs> shocked as if, oh my God, what has mom been doing? But jailbreaking is just opening up what's called the change root jail, okay. which says you can't write to the root partition. The change root jail? Yeah, it's a Unix thing. Okay. And jailbreaking just it changed, essentially changed one line in the Unix setup and just made the root section read write instead of read only. That's all a jailbreak does. I have to be honest, I really like the way you just said that. It's a Unix thing. I feel like you're the only person that can make that sound cool. It's a Unix thing. <laughs> I mean, it's much less impressive than it sounds. Oh, man. Of course, after that, Apple sort of went on this 
kind of journey of trying to have people not do it. Now, at exactly the same time, TiVo had this wonderful policy which said, you want to create fun hobbyist things for our platform? Go ahead. And they lent over backwards to make things easy for people who were comfortable at the Unix command line, who wanted to write programs and so forth for their TiVos. But Apple was really concerned because of content issues. Um, they were concerned because of legal agreements they had and so forth. So I really do think they felt that they had a legal obligation to try to keep hobbyists from writing applications. And Steve Jobs had been very vocal about the only kind of programming you really need to do is create an HTML web page. Mm. He called it the sweet solution. Mm-hmm. And a lot of hobbyists simply felt that programming using code was a sweeter solution. Yeah. Well, it's it's such a, I mean, how grateful, how um, fortunate are we that like there was that pressure from whoever these people were, I guess you included, to say no, like we can make real apps like for this thing. Well, they did back down in 2008. Right, yeah, the SDK came out. Okay, mm-hmm. so SDK comes out, what's like your mind must be like? It was blowing. in around April. And it was it was great because now there was a legal and open way. I'm saying legal in Apple terms because it was always legal in legal terms. <laughs> but, you know, there was a welcoming approach. And, you know, they, they kicked off the App Store and they suddenly found a new revenue stream and it took them a while to figure out what they were doing and to find their way in their mission. And I would say even today, the app store, all of the app stores are still trying to sort of find their way in their mission and what it means to have that openness that, you know, anybody can self publish and so forth. So did you get into writing apps or like consulting and helping people write apps? I had spent a huge amount of time developing um, a voice memo app. And it was something that I originally had on, you know, the jailbreak system. And it turned out to be an absolute disaster because it went into review, I think, June 1st. It was probably one of the first two or three apps that was submitted to Apple because I was waiting all that night and pressing submit, 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 submit till it finally submitted. And then they sat on it and they sat on it for like six months. Oh no. And the reason they sat on it is because my marketing text said, if you run this on an iPod touch, you have to use a third party microphone because at that time the iPod touch didn't have a built-in microphone. Uh Oh, and they didn't like that. And It took them over six months for them to get back to me and say, you have to remove that single line from the marketing text. Oh, my gosh. And so I lost all those initial sales. Oh. And it kind of destroyed my ability to work really in the app store. So since then, I just write stuff for myself and for friends and just use the app store as a convenient way to put stuff out there. Right. But it really did give me the direction of doing consulting and writing because when you spend a huge amount of time, you know, building a major product 
And then I could not get it into the door. Yeah. It was, it was just basically, oh, reality is telling me this is not what I want to do. So you just took like everything that you learned in that whole experience and then turned it into <laughs> And transformed it. it into books. Now, that's not to say I haven't shipped apps because, you know, I have downloads of my apps have been, you know, in the multiple millions, but they've been free apps. I just basically write it if it's convenient. I have not tried to invest it as a business. Yeah, I think it's interesting, like, being a Swift developer or an iOS developer doesn't necessarily mean that you ship apps, mm-hmm. right? I mean, like you can know a whole lot about any of this stuff and and never ship an app. But uh, I think if you look at, well, maybe you don't look, but if you if anyone was to look at like a lot of the jobs out there for iOS developers, it's always like you know ship you've shipped this app or two apps or three apps mm-hmm. or whatever. It's really interesting. Okay, so Swift comes out. What happens in your mind by the time swift comes out i have been writing the ios developers cookbook for years and each year it just is more and more insane (laughs) because you they basically are redoing the entire api every year wow and i have this massive massive book to update and I have to update it by a certain date, take publication into account, and get the greatest number of selling days out of that book, you know, because the book's paying the mortgage and stuff. And all over the summer, essentially, because Dub Dub comes out, you know, or whatever, and then you're sort of having to do all that during the summer? Yeah. Okay. And, of course, during the summer, you know, it's beta after beta after beta, and things that are working in beta X may not work in beta Y. Because, you know, the whole point of a beta period is to get it right. It's not to keep things stable for people who are trying to document the APIs. Okay. So you're having sort of, it's, it's not the best situation for like updating these books. So I do this from about, for about seven years. Then 2014, Apple says, <laughs> we have a new programming language. Instantly, every single book I had put out there, nobody wants books in objective c <laughs> they all want books in swift oh my so God. i say to myself oh well language books have good shelf lives oh, this is going to be great nice. i'm going to jump over to swift i'm going to write a book and that book can sell for 10 years all right so i start writing about swift one all right great wait so you know you how at- that turned out right no. <laughs> By the time Swift had gone through 1, 1.1, 1. 1, 1. oh, 1.2, right. and 1.3, and had changed its syntax at each time. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I said to myself, okay, well, they figured it out. Swift 2 is coming. I knew Swift 2 was coming. I had, you know, pretty much everyone who was doing blogging and so forth there by this point tim cook was in charge and apple was leaking like a sieve there there were no surprises at you know apple keynotes anymore and we knew swift 2 was coming and i said okay fine swift 2 is the new swift one and that's going to be stable and it's going (laughs) to be the language and it's going to have a 10 year shelf life (laughs) and so swift 2 comes along and then Swift 2.1 comes along, Swift 2.2. And, of course, at this past June, they announced Swift, not just Swift 2.3, but Swift 3.0. Oh, 
of course, by this past June, I knew what was happening because they opened Source Swift the previous December. Right. And I had immediately jumped in there simply so I could have an eagle eye view into the development of the language so I would know what was coming. Wow. So, yeah, you're like a Swift historian. <laughs> and, you know, within a few weeks of the open sourcing, I knew that there is no way Swift was going to be stable, even with 3.0 but that Swift kind of knew what it was as a programming language. And if you look between Swift 1.3, Swift 2.0, and Swift 3.0, all the main concepts are in place. Swift 2.0 gave us the error handling system, but between Swift 2 and Swift 3, it's all syntax changes. It's not conceptual changes. Swift has its major types. It has its value types, which are put at a same level as its reference types. It treats them with respect. It lets you extend them. It gives you all this power. And that hasn't changed. That, that was there at the very beginning of Swift. Protocol-oriented programming, even though it really didn't hit until about two it's there and it's still there in three and it's still a major part of how the language operates. There's still a few components that are missing from Swift. In particular, the Swift generic system, there is this huge document which talks about where Swift generics need to be and they're not there and they're not going to hit it in Swift 4. It's probably going to hit in Swift 5. But the most difficult, horrible, yucky part of the Swift process, we're past it. And that's a Swift 2 to, to Swift 3 change. There's, so there's a, I mean, there's a bunch there, but uh, two quick things. So the, um, is that a proposal, the generics uh, discussion? The generics manifesto. Generics. Don't you love that they call it a manifesto? Manifesto. I want to definitely want to check that out. And yeah. then, um, so we're at Swift 3 now. Are mm -hmm. we st stable enough in the sense of like your books aren't going to be that crazy in terms of like having to update them when Swift 4 <laughs> comes out, et cetera? Or do you feel like there's still going to be major changes? Um, there will be changes. There will be breaking changes. But the migrator more or less should have you in hand. What we're seeing moving on from Swift 3 going into Swift 3.1, going into Swift 3.5, and then, you know, 4 and beyond, is really additive. It's including things that are going to just enhance the language. Whereas the, the move from Swift 2.2, and, you know, Swift 2.2 and Swift 2.3 were really the same language. The only difference is that you could submit to App Store in 2.3. But the move from, you know, 2.2 and 2.3 to Swift 3 was traumatic. Well, it was an absolute breaking, traumatic change. And so you ask, will my books be stable? Yeah, I held off. I, I absolutely refused to put out you know, the Swift style thing until I could see language stability. And even though a few details may change, the advice in the book should be good for years. Okay. And when we say breaking change, like, can you give us a small example? Like you said, there still are going to be new breaking changes from mm -hmm. three to four. Like, what does that really mean, a breaking change? 
A breaking change is one that when you compile your code, you get an error. And so like, what is actually happening? Like what, it's just a totally different syntax or that language feature just doesn't exist anymore or something like that? In general, it's going to be a syntax change and it's going to be a syntax change that almost always is associated with a migration task. Okay. Okay. So let's talk about Swift evolution. We're sort of already talking about it. We're talking about the proposals. Uh, we talked a little bit about it, but so like, let's, let's talk about this more specifically. So Swift proposals, like what is a Swift proposal? First off, it's a white paper. It is a statement of a change to the language along with a background of why that change is being proposed because every change needs to have measurable benefits. It needs to be limited in scope and it has to be well supported by arguments of why this is an important change moving forward. Okay, so Swift is open source and it has this proposal, this evolution process where you can submit these proposals. Mm -hmm. And just as you said, it's this white paper. Um, anybody can submit a proposal? Anyone can submit a proposal. Okay. And uh, is it hard to submit? A, actually, what like what's the difference between a language feature and something that's not a language feature? Like I usually get confused with something that might be more of like a framework or something versus mm -hmm. like a language feature. So like if it affects it, the language, it goes through swift evolution. If it's an enhancement, for example, to say swift foundation, it would go to the Swift Foundation folks or to the build people for, you know, the, you know, the, the build tools. Right. It would go to them. Okay. So um, something like how they reach, they change the API for um, Grand Central Dispatch. That's like a framework thing mm -hmm. that has nothing to do with the language specifically. That's just they changed the API for Grand Central Dispatch to be in a more swift way. Well, they did it to more than that. There was a proposal, and it was number five, which talked about how Swift would automatically import Objective-C APIs and C APIs into the language and how they would be presented for consumption. Okay. So was that, is that, so that was a Swift evolution proposal that then led to Grand Central Dispatch renaming? <laughs> yeah, it really did. It was called the Great Renamification. Right. Yeah. I loved the, I loved, I didn't, I guess I wasn't aware that it was a proposal. I love the whole great renaming. So the, that concept, the great renaming comes from that proposal. It, there were a series of three proposals all at once. Oh, okay. And the three proposals was first the API guidelines, which set out what is a Swift API? What does it look like? How does it act? What makes a good Swift API? The second proposal was the automatic importing and renaming of C and Objective-C APIs into Swift. And the third proposal was how do the API guidelines apply to the standard library? Mm. So those three were kind of a batch and they were huge. I mean, those were, I don't even know what to call it. In, in the path of the language, they were the major decision point of deciding what is Swifty 
and what's not Swifty. <laughs> oh, wow. Were you a part of those discussions? I was. So, and just to be clear, anybody can be a part of the discussions, right? You mm-hmm. just join the mailing lists and you read them and you reply. Right. And But obviously you have to read the community guidelines. There's a whole like set of guidelines on how to Yeah, basically know, how to it says think long, speak nice. Yeah. Okay. So you were a part of those discussions. Okay, cool. So how does it become that you, you know, how did you end up like joining, like being a part of this whole proposal thing? Like you just, like what, I, I guess my assumption is like, you are writing books about the language. So you obviously care about it. You have a vested interest in mm-hmm. it. And so, but like, how did it happen with you? For me, getting involved in the process was that I had a vested interest in trying to find a topic and getting some deep knowledge that I could write about. Okay. So getting, um, like, so you're looking into the open source. So you're sort of getting more information than you could if you didn't look into it. Right. And, and you know, once you start being on the list, if you have opinions, people ask you to back those opinions up with facts, with figures, with reasons and so forth. And the more you do that, eventually somebody says, OK, it's time for you know you to put up or shut up. Hmm. If you think the language should be heading in this direction, write a proposal. Okay, so you had been uh, checking out the mailing list and maybe writing some of your opinions in response to proposals. Mm-hmm. And then at some point, someone was like, well, you should write a proposal. It was more the Swift Core team, which was saying, okay, you need, we, we don't want these debates to go on forever. Mm. Write it up. Let's have a community referendum on it. Then it will go over to the core team who makes the call because Apple does have the say on whether or not they accept or reject them. Right. And after that, the matter is settled and you can move on to new topics. You do not have to have the edit wars. You don't have to have the spaces wars. Nobody cares. What was the first proposal that you proposed? My first proposal was... um, Swift Evolution number seven. And it was the first proposal that was brought in from an outside party. Oh, wow. Like someone that was not a member of the core team. That was not an Apple employee. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. And uh, Swift Evolution proposal on number seven was based on the fact that Chris Latner had removed uh, prefix and postfix increment and decrement from the language. And in case you're wondering what those are, those are the plus plus minus minus signs. Right. So you can just, how how do you do it? You say like this thing plus plus or this thing minus minus? Or you can put it before. And if you put it after it, you get the value and then the value updates to the next um, increment or decrement. If you put it before, it does the change first and then returns the value. Okay, so yeah, and it's this, this C style increment decrement thing. Okay. It is definitely C style. Okay. Because so, Swift started with a lot of C influence. Okay, so Chris Latner, he removed, he had a proposal that removed it? Mm-hmm. I think it was like number four or five. Or he had a proposal that like... Um, recommended or or proposed the removal? No, no, it, the removal had happened before the open sourcing. Oh, okay. Okay. And I'm actually going to go look up the number. Yeah, do it. That's number four. Okay. So that was, that was, that had already happened. 
It had already happened. Okay. So we knew that they were removed from the language. Okay, so your proposal was what? My proposal was um, to remove the C-style for loops. And Chris Latner always asks, if a feature were being added to the language now, after they've had time to play with it, use it, and so forth, would it still have been added? And I felt the C-style for loop did not pass that test. And it had a lot of safety issues as well. Let's talk about those. Because uh, I, so I don't really know much about like this. I don't know C, you know, I think I went into a C++ class like mm -hmm. in high school the first day and I was like, what is this? And I left. So I don't know this stuff. So I don't really have strong feelings about it. But um, apparently like some people do. But like, so, so what, what are those safety issues? A C style for loop, unlike the new uh, swift things of strides and sequences and so forth, it accumulates errors. Interesting. And that's simply because what it does is if you start off with, say, a value of 0.0, .0 and you keep adding 0.2 to it, each floating point addition has a little error associated with it. And as you keep adding, you have the increase and increase and increase and increase of those errors. If you use today's equivalent of that loop, which is the stride function, which is stride from value to value by, you know, increment or decrement, those errors are gone. And okay, so so what were like what were some people saying like in to to oh, what's it called to go know, against burn the her <laughs> oh my gosh you know people were burning semicolons on my front lawn figuratively oh my gosh that's people terrible got, people still get very emotional about this oh that's terrible I'm sorry <laughs> to hear that but it was it it starved one of the most probably the most common source of increment and decrement because those had been removed from the language. And that was the number one point where people use that construct. So I, we just removed a bunch of those uh, in this um, this legacy code, and it felt natural. It felt natural mm -hmm. to not have that. Um, and, and when I saw it, I'm like, what is this? This doesn't seem like all of a sudden I'm dealing with this like thing that I've just never really seen before mm -hmm. or something like that. It just didn't seem... It didn't feel swifty. Yeah. I felt there was an expressive disadvantage in the old style thing that doesn't happen when you use strides that doesn't happen when you use for in with collections that doesn't happen when you use for in with sequences and with sequences you can have really so much more better math so you can have simple sequences one two three four five you can have complex sequences you know zero five ten fifteen and so forth and you can have you know fibonacci series you know if you want to iterate through that using the new style that really did not lend itself to the for loop or would have errors associated with them okay so what was what was the last proposal that you submitted last meaning most recent uh yeah the, the most recent proposal that you submitted Oh my gosh, I have to look at my table of contents. Okay. <laughs> so how many proposals have you submitted total? A bunch. How many have been accepted? A bunch. 
Okay, on my current and active list is um, something which allows collections to be indexed as well as enumerated. Because Swift uses a new indexing model, and an index into a collection isn't just zero, one, two, and three. Mm -hmm. The indices in modern Swift are a lot more complicated, and using enumerations with them mean that you're not actually accessing the indices. So it's a lot of my proposals tend to be like really technical. Wow. And this is one of those really technical ones. So that one um, has been submitted. It is a pull request. And I have requested that that go into the review process. Okay. So what about like the proposal process? Like if let's say, you know, I'm a Swift developer and I have this brilliant idea, like, you know, but I'm kind of not sure, like, should I just do it? And then what's the process like? You start off by pitching the list and see if anybody's interested. Where do we go to do that? And that's a Swift evolution list. You go over to swift.org. Okay. And there's a community tab. You go there and you sign up for the mailing list. Okay. So it's not difficult. It really isn't. Um, and I think it was yesterday or the day before somebody sent their first pitch to the list. So I think that it's a really good example of the process. So let can't remember her name. So you, you and mean I that know I someone should... someone just submitted their first proposal to the mm -hmm. list. Oh, cool! And is a good example of like a first proposal. And it was a particularly good example of a first proposal. I'm totally against the proposal, but it was a fabulous <laughs> example of pitching. How okay? heated? How heated did the like debates and discussions get? They can get cranky. <laughs> oh man! And so this particular pitch was from a lady who wants to remove the ternary operator. Oh, yeah, the ternary. I like that thing. I love the ternary. Yeah. It's simple. It's succinct. It's expressive. It's really convenient. And it's something most people master really quickly, even though their first exposure to it, they might not get it the first time. Yeah. If you explain it to them, there's almost always a light bulb moment. And after that, they're using it in all their code. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So if you like the ternary operator and you want to defend it, how do we go and defend it? Well, what you do is then you reply to the email list. Okay. So I got to go get on that. And what you say is, I think the ternary is awesome. And this is why. I, do, or... I don't think the language would benefit by changing it into a function. What are most people saying? Like, I'm kind of getting scared right now. What are most people saying? Are they defending it? Um, some are, some aren't. Uh-oh. Because there's always a difference of opinion. Yeah, yeah. But. I think, okay, I think it's important that we make this, uh, make the person feel like, because it's their first proposal, maybe mm -hmm. they're new. And her name is Charlotte, by the way. Charlotte. And that's like awesome, you know, that that like this person is doing that. Right. And like mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, maybe they have valid points. I didn't haven't read it, but um, I can remember when I first saw the ternary and I'm kind of like, oh, that's weird. Yeah. What is that? But you're mm -hmm. totally right. As soon as uh, someone explained it to me, I did have a light bulb moment and now I mm -hmm. love using it. Um, so. You know, if you if you like it too, go right on there. But be nice to to Charlotte. Let's let's be the community that we want to be. But she does talk very reasonably about why she's against it. 
Okay. It, she's just not going there and saying, oh, it's bad, therefore we should remove it. She made a 10-point list of the disadvantages and comes up with a solution which she thinks is a better and more swifty solution. What's the swift, um, is it swift evolution proposal? What, what's it the number? It is not yet a proposal. Oh. Because you always start off with a pitch. You start oh. off with a discussion. And it doesn't become a proposal. It doesn't get a number until it goes through quite a bit of discussion, refinement. Oh, okay. And you generally have sort of a working group of interested people. And then you submit it to the Swift Evolution repository on GitHub. It's assigned at some point a proposal manager. And then it goes into the review process. So there are like six or seven stages along the way where a proposal can falter, where a proposal can be sent back for review, or the core team can simply say, we don't think this is a really good idea and we would like not to move forward with this. Okay, so what's it called? It's called a pitch then, before it's a proposal, it's a pitch. You know, it goes generally, and honestly, I made up these terms, so you okay. know. Well, how can that I go see it? If it's still in the pitch phase, how can I go see it? You go to the Swift Evolution list, okay, and you look for the word pitch in the topic line. Oh, okay. Cool. So it usually goes from pitch towards draft. And then once the draft's been gone over for a while, and you may have a sponsor on the core team by that point, then you probably want to write it up, you know, using Markdown and put it into the repository as a pull request. Okay, cool. So um, I want to talk a little bit and we're at the, you know, we're at the end, we're a little bit over, but I, I want to talk about Swift evolution, like more like using your Oracle, you know, you're kind of like an Oracle, you're a historian, but you're also an Oracle, right? You have like deep understanding of the language and you're obviously you're contributing to it. So you're like also a sculptor in that, mm -hmm. in that, in that way. So like the Oracle of Delphi was also really into breathing those fumes. <laughs> I'll have to look that up. The Oracle of Delphi. So, so what I want to know is, um, like, what are, what are you, what's like driving you in terms of like shaping Swift, and where do you see it going? Where do you want it to see it go? Where can it go? You know, that's a really deep question <laughs> because a lot of times, what will happen is I'll be using Swift in a project. I'll run across something that just annoys me or doesn't get the job done or otherwise is just simply coming from actual coding. And then I'll write up a blog post about it on ericasadoon.com. And then somebody will say, take it to Swift Evolution. So I take <laughs> it over to Swift Evolution. And time after time, that eventually becomes you know, a proposal now, right now, the language is sort of trying to focus on stability. So they're more often going to tell me to file a bug report than a language enhancement right now. They're going to say, hold on to the language enhancements until at least the second phase of Swift 4. Interesting. So is it like proposals? They kind of want proposals to sort of slow down? They really do. It's really the hard work right now is implementing all the proposals because not every proposal has been implemented yet, mm -hmm. even the accepted ones. Mm -hmm. uh, bug fixes, 
uh, just trying to get the core design complete. And there's that whole like source compatibility thing or ABI stability, something like mm-hmm. that. That is something which should be in either three five or four zero, and okay. maybe in four five. And like in terms of like the major releases, are we looking at like a year? Like we're just going to do every year, or is it sort of when it when it's ready, it's ready? For reasons I do not begin to understand, they have adopted a yearly update. Okay. And it's Maybe. not something I'm a huge fan of. I really felt that if they could have pushed out Swift 3 and allowed Swift 2.3 just to be good for a year or two, it would have lessened the distress in transition. So you mean hold hold off Swift 3 and just let Swift 2.3 be, be the thing for a while? Until yeah, because it was, was it's Swift two three, as you know, you're programming in it. It's a terrific language. I enjoy Swift. I think I'm doing. Uh, am I in, in Swift two two point two or two point three? I'm using Xcode if you're submitting 7. 3. to if you're submitting to App Store. Okay. You're in two three. Oh, two okay. two and two three are the same language. Okay. The only difference is two three lets you submit to App Store. Since when submit to the App Store? Since September. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, so hold off on Swift 3 and like yeah. just, yeah, okay. But they didn't go that way. They released Swift 3 in September. Yeah, they kind of rushed it, it feels like, maybe. And there are realities of working for Apple. Right. That they have to deal with their schedules and timelines and so forth. Yeah, like maybe they want everything to kind of ship at the same time, I guess. like. Yeah. Yeah. And... There's only so much that can be done at a local scope, especially if you don't work for the company. But the decision to ship Swift 3, the timeline for Swift 3, 1, 3, 5, 4, and 4, 5, they're, they're things that the, the open source community has no control over. So if we get more people contributing to open source, like implementing proposals and fixing bugs and things Mm -hmm. like that, does that help speed it up? It certainly helps it be less behind when it ships. Because as you just said, some things have to just be implemented by the core team or by Apple employees. I would say the implementation part, there is a huge community of people working really hard on implementing Swift and enhancing Swift. It is wonderful. It is a large, vibrant community. However, this open source effort does not have anything to do with DevTools. So you can't change Xcode. Mm. You can't change Cocoa Foundation. You can't change UI kit. Right. Or, you know, Coco. Right. Those are all internal to Apple, even though there's an interplay between the language and these tools. Yeah, interesting. So, one of my proposals that was accepted allows the documentation markup to create cross references between a mutating version of a function and a non-mutating version of a function. 
It's been accepted. It is officially part of the SWIFT specification. But Xcode hasn't implemented it yet. Interesting. Well, wait, so what is that exactly? Um, I mean, I understand the markup part, but how is it? How, how is that? How does the, explain that a little? <laughs> markup is, have you heard of header doc? Uh, no, I understand the markup part. So you can you can basically document your code, right? And so, you, and I know you wrote. But a it's book on more than just comments. It's a structured comment system. Oh, okay. That Xcode can then read, validate, and present using its quick help system. Okay, so I didn't know they were like totally different things. So I'm I'm aware of like the quick help and how I think Apple has like a whole section on their sort of markup or markdown mm -hmm. markup. It's, and, it is markup. Markdown then, is a kind of markup. And yeah, and this is what I'm confused about, too. So if we want to document our code, do we use markup or markdown? All code that is using any sort of special tags is markup. HTML is a markup language. That's the M and the L. XML is a markup language. So Swift has its own markup language which is the Swift header documentation. Okay. And if you use Doxygen and um, Javadoc or Apple's old header doc systems, they all use special keywords and special structures in order to create automatic document generation from the way that you use your comments. So, but it, it scrapes your files and pulls your comments and makes docs. It doesn't mm -hmm. add, it's like, I, I wanted help knowing what the keywords and things were to actually write the comments. And um, I know you mm -hmm. wrote a book on that. I looked at a little bit of that. I'm going to actually have our company buy that book for sure. Now. Um, but uh, Apple has a little bit of information on their website about their mm -hmm. markup, but it really was hard actually to like find out, okay, I'm writing a, a, an API. I want to comment it. Like, how do I commented and like mm -hmm. okay so 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 using structured markup is part of how you publish your api you don't just say okay here's the api and the arguments you say this is what the api does this is what it returns here are the roles of the parameters here are the error conditions it may encounter here are the preconditions and postconditions, you know, that are invariants associated with it. Here is um, warnings, cautions and warnings yeah. and cross references. And these are all things that are part of a well put together API. Yeah. It's not just the code. Right, right. Okay, so then Xcode cannot tell the difference between a mutating and a non-mutating function or something as it relates to the markup or something? The Swift addition to the markup includes two new keywords. In fact, includes six new keywords, but I contributed two of those. Oh, I see. And okay. although they're in the specification, Xcode engineers, they work for dev tools in Apple. They don't work, you know, as part of the open source system. I see. So they just haven't gotten around to implementing those features. I see. What are the two keywords? You said it was two keywords? What, what are they? Mutating variant and non-mutating variant. Wow. Okay. So when you say mutating variant, that's a, that would then be a, 
the idea is that would be a, a keyword that um, a document generator would understand or mm -hmm. something, or Xcode's document. Right. So oh. let's say you have the two functions, union and union in place. Okay. Uh, union, or sorry, union and form union, they renamed them. Okay. Union is the mutating version. So it it mutates the thing that you're calling union, uh, union on. S say you have an array or a set, and you it with another array or set. Right. It changes the thing that you were doing. Right. If you do form union, it returns a copy. Right. It returns a new value that is a union of the two things. Okay. So when you do the quick help, if my thing were working, it would have an automatic link between the two. Oh, cool. So you just click on one and then you go to the one that's the non-mutating or you click on the non-mutating. It would go over to the one that's mutating. It cross-references the two and creates a logical connection between them. It makes it so that, well, this is kind of what I was looking for, but what I was wanting was the one that doesn't change it. Oh, there it is. And so it would show up in quick help, but because... Mm -hmm. The dev team, I mean, obviously they have so much stuff to do. Xcode team, they haven't, they haven't built that in and to understand it. And if you include it, it what help. you do is you crash Xcode help. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow, wow. So, so your proposal, it's been accepted. It's been implemented. It's in the specification. but it It's hasn't on been. the Swift side. So it, you, your proposal is causing people's things to crash, Xcode to crash. Look at that. Look how influential Well, it doesn't you are. <laughs> really because most people don't know it exists. Oh, right, right. It's I'm just that try it. what happens is every time there's a new beta, I get an email and it says, would you please check the error of your bug using the new beta or Xcode version? Uh -huh. Uh -huh. You know the, those emails, don't you? No, I've never really uh, submitted a bug. Oh, Oh, I've okay. tried, but it's like such a huge like list of things you have to do. This bug reporter thing, the yeah. radar. And they every time they update, they say, OK, you need to go check all your bugs <laughs> and oh, see wow. see whether or not they still work. And people will generally check the ones they actually care about. And then go back and say, nope, still not working. And then there's a lot of them where you just say, I don't have time for this. OK, well, I'm definitely... I'm definitely going to have to read that book, the Markdown, uh, Mark Up one, because I was yeah. confused on Markdown and Mark Up. And I, <laughs> I using, I think, a couple like like snippets from your book and then Apple's website, which mm -hmm. isn't really that, I feel like, helpful. It's slightly helpful, but not that helpful. I was able to do some basic um, markup for um, a, an internal like library that um, I helped build. And then I use Jazzy. If you're not familiar with Jazzy, Jazzy's realm. lovely. Yeah, Jazzy's. So I write about out. it in the book. Oh, okay, awesome. Yeah, maybe I, maybe I remember that. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, Jazzy's awesome. Um, so it's this cool tool uh, made by Realm. Shout out to Realm, they're awesome. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, you just run Jazzy and it like creates this website basically, which you can host. I host for free on GitHub, um, which is like it looks like Apple Docs. It's so cool. It like feels so mm -hmm. nice. So like it feels like you really did something. You know, it's so cool. Oh man, I love this stuff. Yeah. Okay, so we are um, we are like well at the end, but man, I just wish we could talk for for longer. So I don't know, maybe one day we can have you back on. That would be awesome. Yeah, because there's just so much more that we could talk about. I mean, you have um, a couple other books out there. Let me look. You sent me like a list. So so the Swift documentation markup book, 
mm-hmm. playground secrets and power tips. Everything so, you need to know about playgrounds. Okay, so like how to get the most out of them. Like you can use them as a, instead of using Keynote, you can use like playgrounds as like a presentation slide kind of thing if you're doing live Well, coding. I've never actually thought of that, but yeah, I suppose you could. I'll send you a link um, to this guy who, uh, Das Dom, I, ha- I had him on, Dominic Hauser, I had him on. He, he has like a little post where he did it. Cool. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't get too deep into it, but uh, what else? I mean, there's like live. Um, there's all like oh, the, all the live view stuff I cover. Yeah, and okay. how to do um, visualizations within the playground, embedded visualizations. Okay. It, there's a lot of wonderful things you can do there. Yeah, playgrounds are really, really powerful, and um, I feel mm-hmm. like it's only going to become more so in the future. I have drag and drop playgrounds for you know just fun desktop utilities. Interesting. Okay. Give me an example. Um, I have one that does a word count and um, other stats about text. So they're just like quick little programs. And then you you can can have one on each page. Well, and then you can just drop in, let's say, a paragraph, how many words are in this paragraph. So it's like this quick little, whereas I normally would go to a a website for Mm. like word count or time converter or something like that. Oh, that's such a great idea. But with playgrounds, the great thing is that you just can create a little book with several pages of just convenient little utilities. So if you want to remind yourself of something happening later that day, you can set up a playground web page that you just asks you what it is and then sets up the notification for you. So you don't actually have to go through either building an app to set up notifications or you know, do complex things. It's if you're kind of a hobbyist and you just want to build little programs without building entire applications, playgrounds are perfect. Right on. Have you uh, messed around at all with playground books, author or something like that? The ones for Swift playgrounds, the iPad app? I have. And I do cover that to a certain point, but, and here's my but, right now, it's a, even though they published the specifications, the specifications have been changing a bit. Okay. And I've been really hesitant to write about it because I don't want to write about unstable tech right now. Right, right. Okay, but that seems like it'll be really interesting moving forward as oh, an educational resource. It's certainly exciting. Um, and just kind of like looking through um, a swift kick in the apps. <laughs> well, that one's not written. That's a proof of concept book. Okay, sorry. So I'm looking at this thing you sent me. Is this okay to... Yeah, no, you, you're more than welcome to discuss it. it. If you take a look at that coffee cup, notice anything interesting on that coffee cup on that cover? Yeah, it's a Swift uh, Swift <laughs> symbol, but it's brown. Yeah, I, I, I Photoshopped that in. That looks good. Yeah, it's like um, to keep your hand from burning. Yes. That's good. Actually, but that might on... be nice to have. But in terms of the published books, there's the documentation markup. There's a okay. Playgrounds book. There's the two to three. Right. And these are all self-published. Swift Style's coming out from Pragmatic. So keep your eye over at um, Pragprog, I think, is their website. Okay. And hopefully the Swift Style will be later in November, halfway or two-thirds of the way. You should be able to see that. And then I have a traditional book, the Swift Developer's Cookbook, which is from Addison Wesley Pearson. And then there's one uh, more I'm seeing. It's like a green. There's like a little snail. Yeah. Swift drawing. Um, 
Addison Wesley decided that they did not want to update my, this is like a four or five year old book, but it's oh, okay. really one of my favorites I've ever written. It's all about um, using core graphics. But it's Swift, so it can't be that old. Well, I'm changing it to become Swift. So what you're seeing oh. is the draft as I'm writing it. Oh, awesome, awesome. Because Swift and just plus core graphics of, is amazing. It's wonderful. They just changed some of the APIs, right? Well, it's not really changing the APIs. It's reinterpreting oh, the them. Sorry, the naming. The naming. The great renamification. So maybe we can look forward to seeing that book soon? Sometimes um, with drawing? Hopefully. Right now, you know, it's really early on in the process for that. Okay. But since I'm doing it from an existing book... The content is pretty settled. It's just that there are some new wonderful things that came out with iOS 10. Okay. In terms of better graphics stuff that you're saying, oh my gosh, why did they not put this into like iOS 3? But there are some really wonderful new things in iOS 10. And so I'm incorporating that new stuff in there too. Okay, cool. So it's going to be, it's going to be a process. Yeah, that one seems uh, really exciting, like drawing. I feel like I just um, love that book. That that whole dr the drawing process, I feel like, is like something. It definitely deserves a book. I think that's that's that's. And exciting. people kept writing me. They kept saying, "We love the book. We use the book all the time." You know, why can't you move it from Objective C, please, please? Will you redo it in Swift? And um, Addison Wesley is kind of narrowing its developer books, okay. and because of that, um, they're reverting the rights to me. I asked oh. for permission to, to redo this. Okay. So that's what you're looking at with the cute little snail. Well, hopefully that will come out at some point. Um, okay. And then in term, besides like um, submitting all these proposals, do you contribute at all to open source? Like actually like, you know, in the other way, like where you can actually like implement things and fix bugs and stuff like that? Yeah, there's, I've got like a billion repos. Oh, GitHub wow. Erica. Okay. I will. Um, and then, are you at all like into Swift on the server or different applications of Swift besides making apps? You know, I theoretically would be interested. I just haven't had much time. Yeah, you don't have time, of course. I've, I've done probably more Swift shell scripting than most people. Oh, have you written about that at all? Like how to get started with that? Yeah, I have written a few posts, but I do love writing shell scripts in swift because you know you can is do you have a post on like how to get started or is it pretty easy to get started i want to i'd love to I, learn that. i know i have several posts up they're all pretty okay. old i'm gonna okay i'm gonna follow up with you on that okay and then um it sounds like you're you're excited about um swift and the accelerate framework so that that makes me hopeful because i really do like the idea of um learning more advanced applications of the language um mm. i mean you i can, mean in in the back of my mind, I really feel that at some point I'm going to write about dangerous Swift. Ooh. You know, all the unsafe operators, the ones that let you interact with raw C APIs. Oh, no, I don't know about those. Um, but the thing is, Swift drawing is sort of in that direction because core graphics is almost entirely C. Okay. And so I'm sort of getting my feet wet doing Swift drawing with the C APIs. But as I'm doing it, I'm sort of thinking, wow, I could probably write more about how exactly do you pass void functions back and forth okay. and, you know, the fun stuff. Have you played around with Swift Playgrounds at all? 
the the I, um, the uh, app on iPad? I have, and it is covered in the Playgrounds book. Okay, so just real quick, as you mentioned, um, the core graphics being a C API, like so in one of the the Playground Swift Playgrounds um, books, I guess you could, you could call it, or or you know apps. I don't know. It's inside whatever the little books. Um, I guess it's a playground. Um, it talks about shapes and it'll have like circle and square and things like that. Mm-hmm. I wonder if Apple is like secretly working on like a new, just like easier to work with drawing API where like, just give me a circle. I want a circle. Like why do I need to like draw a path and all that? Um, and maybe there's already third party libraries out there that do that. But like the fact that they're doing that on in Swift playgrounds, I mean, that means that there must be some type of API already built. Right. Because when I say, give me a circle, it gives me a circle. So I don't know. I mean, I just thought I'd throw that out there. Do you know what <laughs> there, I'm talking about? There is a core graphics API that does give you ovals. Ovals, yeah. But nothing like literally circle, which is maybe a struct, and like I just initialize it with a radius or something like mm-hmm. that and a color. But Who knows? here's the thing. The secret is that Swift is so good at extending structures and adding new behavior that you can build your own initializers. And in fact, I have done that. I have ones for circles where you just provide a radius. And I do have ones for, you know, a lot of times when I think that Apple has done something that's ugly, I'll just rewrite it with my own APIs. Mm -hmm. For example, do you know what an affine transform is? Yeah, and I I say affine, affine, affine. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a three by three matrix. And well, I don't know exactly what it is, but I've (laughs) worked with it. I know I don't understand what it is, but I know how to sort of work with it. Well, the APIs are really ugly. Yeah, I hate their APIs. Yeah, totally. For example, if you want to do scaling, it's x scale colon y colon. Ah, oh, it's so unbalanced. It makes me so, so upset to see that. So I wrote my own SX and XSY. Are we able to see that online or? Well, I'm actually doing that as part of the Swift drawing book. I can, I can oh, certainly, cool. you know, no, 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 no. I don't want any uh, <laughs> special treatment or anything like that. No, that's awesome. But I, you okay, can make things beautiful because Swift lets you adapt, replace, extend any type. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, almost any type, because if the type is not marked as extensible, you're not going to do it. But you, you can, if you're building stuff, you get that fl- freedom, that flexibility to make things beautiful. And it's something you don't really find as much in other programming languages. Okay, so little little tangent, but I mean, again, it's just because, I don't know, we just ha- enjoy talking about this stuff. I really appreciate your excitement. But okay, we do have to wrap it up because... The Mac event is in like six minutes. Six minutes. minutes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, um, uh, so you know, I'll, real quick, where can people contact you online? Uh, ericasadoon.com. My email address is there. Erica Soon on Twitter. Cool. Um, awesome. You know, it's I don't have a lot of imagination when it comes to these No, things. that's perfect. That's perfect. Okay. And then uh, where's the best place to buy your books? iBookstore, Amazon, website? If it's self-published, I only publish on iBooks and LeanPub. And the reason is Amazon doesn't let me update books. And I like updating them. I like being able to push new content as the language changes, as the, uh, the operating systems change. I have a tendency just to go in and just refresh the content so that 
the content of the book. As opposed to shipping a new modern. edition. As opposed to shipping a new edition. Okay. okay so for cool. my self-published books, the places that let me do that are LeanPub and iBooks. Okay, cool. But for my regularly published books, anywhere you want to, Barnes & Noble, Amazon. Okay, cool. All right, awesome. Are there other bookstores that still exist? <laughs> Maybe. Okay, so the very, very last piece. Uh, okay. One piece of advice for people learning Swift. Go. Make it beautiful. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I like that. Okay. Other programming languages, you know, they're always make it work. Swift lets you make it beautiful. Yeah, I mean, it really is. It's like... It's like art, you know, I really agree. Okay, Erica, thank you so much. You know, starting, you know, just you came on, you told us uh, so much, so much. And just I love the energy. I, I love like leaving this podcast feeling just so like great with energized. And I hope the listeners feel the same way because that's the whole point. Thank and you thank for you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for sharing your story. You know, um, you, you know starting with BASIC and then learning Fortran and, you know, uh, going, I think you were doing Fortran high school and then doing, uh, you know, college. And what was it like building this like vision program with Lisp for the friend or foe and then like learning Smalltalk and uh, Next um, uh, in object oriented programming and then, you know, getting, trying to like, you know, not um, keep the marriage, make it so it works. How does that <laughs> and work? And it has, it has. Yeah. And congratulations to that. That's beautiful. And so you do like consulting and writing. Um, and then, you know, iOS, um, the SDK or, you know, phone OS or whatever comes out. And um, you start uh, playing around with that and working on your voice memos app. But then it's like six months and, it, you know, and, and <laughs> over I, six months, yeah, over six months. And that's when it gets into the app store because of this little line of like, uh, you know, you have to use an external microphone. And so then you're like, OK, well, I guess I'm just not supposed to be focusing on making apps. Maybe I'm supposed to be doing this writing and consulting. And, um, you know, now you're just like writing all these books. You're really just doing an amazing job writing good content for Swift developers out there. And um, all these proposals on Swift Evolution, like helping guide this language to be more friendly and beautiful and safe and just awesome to work with. And yeah, so um, thank you so much for coming on and sharing that with us. Thank you, Garrett. Oh, and for telling us about your amazing books. And, and, and yeah, and like, I just wish you the best of luck with those, with those. And um, I'll link to all that stuff. So thank you so much. Awesome. Take care. And that's the show, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you enjoyed listening to the Swift Coders podcast. Feel free to share the show with a friend, leave a review on iTunes, or recommend us on Overcast. If you have any questions, comments, or just want to say hi, contact me on Twitter. Until next time, go swiftly, my friends.